0: Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University. Today we'll talk with Professor Samuel Zip about his book, The Idealist, Wendell Wolke's wartime quest to build one world, published this year by Harvard University Press. Zip is an associate professor of American Studies and Urban Studies at Brown University, and the author of a previous monograph titled, Manhattan Projects, The Rise and Fall of Urban Renewal in Cold War New York. In this latest book, Zip tries to understand how ordinary Americans thought about the world and the structures and ideologies that held it together. Zip does this by focusing on the life of Wendell Wilkie, a one-time Republican presidential candidate, businessman, and unofficial presidential envoy. In 12 engaging chapters, Zip recreates Wilkie's 49-day tour around the world during the late summer and fall of 1942 and provides a panoramic account of many crucial global events of these years. This sophisticated book challenges readers to think about American exceptionalism, racialist ideas of civilization, empire, and the larger place of the United States and the world. Welcome to the show, Professor Zip.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Stephen, I appreciate it.
0: I wanted to start before we get into the book itself. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your historical training and how you see your historical training um, having shaped uh, how how it's shaped some of the themes that you explore in this book, as well as your previous
1: uh, monograph. Sure. Thanks. Well, I think of myself as primarily a cultural historian. I was trained mm-hmm. in an American Studies department um, in the late 1990s and in the early 2000s, and I think of myself as um, somebody who learn to think about political culture through the lens of the way that politics was was lived and the way that ideas were lived and experienced and the ways that those were mediated through various kinds of cultural forms. And so what I try to do is to think about the constellations of meaning and power mm-hmm. that arrive uh, – that, that, that mobilize around people's ideas and interests in politics. Um, so uh, – and I like to take uh, a look at this through – various kinds of different sort of narrative forms. So in my first book, it was about places. It was about the building mm-hmm. and reception of particular landscapes in New York City, the landscapes that were created by urban renewal and the way that they were understood um, and reacted to and, and and resisted or negotiated with by by the people who had to live in, in the places that were transformed by by policies of urban renewal. Um, in, in this book, what I was looking to do is actually sort of related to my first book in an interesting kind of way, which was that one of the chapters in there was about the history of the building of the United Nations headquarters in Manhattan as a, as a mm-hmm. kind of prototype, early prototype for thinking about the transformation of Manhattan and the kinds of urban planning policies that would be brought to bear on the cityscape of Manhattan um, and they're the sort of globalist ambitions of those, those times. Uh, and, and one of the thing that I things that I got interested in during that time was the was the lived experience and meaning making capabilities of a whole group of people I came to call popular internationalists, who were people who won a, a fairly large audience for a progressive brand of internationalism during during World War II and just in the in the sort of run-up to the Cold War. And so I, I thought about how to to think about this relatively uh, under-understood group of people. Um, and I, I wrote an essay about the essayist E.B. White, who was an, an advocate of world government. Um, people mostly remember him for his children's stories and his essays, but he was a fairly strong advocate, or although ambivalent in, in many ways, advocate for world government. And I, and I thought about writing a sort of group portrait of many of these people who put these ideas before, before a large public. Uh, in, in the years between the, ni- the early 1940s and the late 1940s. But I decided in the end that, that the way to tell this story was through one person, and that was clearly Wendell Wilkie, who was the person who, who, most, um, who most came to symbolize the idea that the United States would take on a larger and more capacious role in the world. Right, His, uh, The phrase that came to be associated with him, the phrase that he didn't uh, pioneer or invent, one world, Um, but one that he really popularized, Uh, he became a sort of icon for this vision of the world. And it's one that, as I came to learn more about uh, the book that he wrote, called One World, of course, and his his trip around the world in 1942, um, I I sort of came to see him as the place where a whole bunch of ideas uh, collected, and he became a kind of, um, or sort of, icon of this kind of moment in our cultural history. He was a person who was trying to push for these ideas, but was also being swept up in a larger current of ideas um, that was transforming American life in those years. Um, and that's what I take cultural history to be at its essence, is the study of uh, what people do, but how they do it without uh, fully understanding or fully controlling it, as they're swept along by larger structures, ideas, um, econ- economics, politics, mm-hmm. and how they intervene in those, and channel those larger currents that they're they're intervening in as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find your decision to to structure the book as a as a biography really um, engaging. And for but for for listeners who are unfamiliar, I thought we could start with maybe if you could provide a thumbnail sketch uh, of Wilkie, who he was, right, right. what his reputation was like at the time, but also kind of if you could explain. What internationalism was, what the what were the various strands of it, how did it differ in the US uh, versus Europe? Um, can you just give us a sense of those things?
1: Sure. So yeah, I, I did choose to structure this biographically, although I don't think of it as a sort of conventional biography, in the sense that what I take this book to be is a portrait and a narrative. A depiction of a moment right mm. a, a, a possibly transformative moment in American history politics and culture where things were uh, old possibilities um, old kinds of assumptions were were opened up and and um, left bare for a moment for the possibility of new sorts of transformations and I think again wilkie is the kind of uh, way into this, uh, into this possibly transformative moment, and also the way into the way to see how that moment was partially foreclosed. But so Wilkie, um, to 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 uh, to give a, your uh, listeners here an understanding of of Wilkie as a person, Wilkie is mm. fascinating for this um, for these purposes because he is such a kind of iconoclast. I often think that the title of the book might better have been the iconoclast rather than the idealist, mm. although he was both. Um, Wilkie is. Um, a, you know, at the time that he comes into public life, into public view, which is in the late 1930s, he's essentially a corporate lawyer. He's a lawyer for uh, what at the time on the left and by progressives would have been called the Power Trust. He worked for an organization called Commonwealth and Southern, which was a utility Mm -hmm. um, holding company. And he had come to that uh, simply as a lawyer. He had um, been trained as a lawyer and uh, grew up like his father who was also a lawyer in Indiana where he had a sort of prairie populist upbringing or at least a, a kind of um, progressive upbringing. Um, his family were fans of and uh, uh, hosts to William Jennings Bryan in the late 19th and early 20th century as he made his runs for presidency and made his swings through Indiana. Um, and then he be, he uh, eventually became a sort of um, – just a general purpose lawyer whose work uh, in both Toledo, Ohio, and then eventually in New York brought him into contact with the um, with the power company, with power with the power industry, where he became a lawyer for them. And um, so, on the one hand, he was this—he was officially a Democrat up until the late nineteen thirties—and um, had these uh, sort of progressive um, views about internationalism, about civil rights. Right? He had been a, a real. Um, Admirer of Woodrow Wilson, so he was essentially a Wilsonian internationalist in his uh, in his teens and twenties. Uh, you know, he was what was he would have been um, in his early twenties uh, uh, at the end of World War One, um, when uh, the League of Nations was um, you know brought before the United States Senate and failed, all right, which was a great blow for him and many other, of course, many other internationalists. Um, but he was also at the same time. Unlike many of the generation that would go out into the New Deal or who had been deeply involved in other forms of sort of regulatory um, efforts amongst – under sort of progressive era reform times, he was very um, committed to uh, the the, uh, internal reform – of free market capitalism. So um, he saw, at least as far as we can tell, he saw no real um, contradiction between his work for the power companies and his interest in kind of liberal and progressive policies. Um, and so when he comes to public public uh, view, he is at, is fighting as a lawyer and as actually a corporate head, he's did that, that, at that time, he's become one of the um, executives for Commonwealth and Southern, against um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Attempts to nationalize the um, nationalize the power industry. So he is, in that sense, a, um, a sort of one of the foremost spokesmen for uh, for what he calls free enterprise in those years. Um, although behind the scenes he's one of the those in that era, in that industry who's most willing to compromise with the government right and the many of the power chiefs as they were called see him as kind of an outsider in their very hidebound conservative circles for most for his politics and for his um for his willingness to compromise with the government but publicly he's seen as the foremost and most charismatic defender of the power industry but he's also known as an internationalist and so he is in some sense, um, ripe for, um, a larger public role because there's a whole group of liberal Republicans who hope to contest, uh, Mm -hmm. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's, um, what the, the, the third term for Roosevelt in 1940. And they're hoping to find somebody who can neutralize the internationalist issue, but who can, um, contest the new deal. And in Wilkie, they find their man. And in 1939 and 40, he switches parties, runs against Wilkie on the Republican line in a very dramatic election, um, in which he is, um, nominated, uh, without entering any primaries, but at a four in a floor fight at the Republican national convention in Philadelphia. Um, and then goes on to a rather, um, you know, I don't know if it was entirely a landslide defeat, but um, doesn't suffer doesn't do as well in the general election. Let's just say, but mm-hmm. in this sense, he has made himself into a great public figure as a sort of part of the loyal opposition. Uh, many of the ways that uh, Wilkie has entered American history in the last half decade, half excuse me, half century or so, the last fifty years is, is the is the telling and retelling of the story of the nineteen forty election, and then the way that that Wilkie come. Um, Sort of collaborates informally with his former opponent, Roosevelt, to, to ease the United States into the war, right? His collaboration with, with Roosevelt on getting Lend Lease passed and mm-hmm. so on and so forth, to sort of protect um, Roosevelt's right flank, as it were, um, to suggest that mm-hmm. the, to help suggest to the, the public and the world at large that the US is united, even though it's not, in the years 1940 and 41, as the, the great debate about entering the war you know, threatens to tear the country apart. And this is an important part of his um, important part of his life, um, and an important story to be told. It's been told many times, but I felt that that there needed to be a different kind of story told about Wilkie, and that was the story of his um, his attempt to go beyond the kind of consensus around um, so-called isolationism and so-called um, internationalism in American thinking about the world. And I think the the uh, story of his trip and his one world ideals have often been shunted to the background or ignored altogether, and not understood for what they they truly were, um, which was a a, mm-hmm. a novel kind of intervention into um, what was a fairly um, stage managed set of debates about how the United States would emerge from World War II and become and become a world power. Um, so Wilkie's a part of a, a much larger. Um, At the same time that Wilkie is – we might think of Wilkie as uh, putting forth some very innovative ideas. That's in large part because he has such an incredible public and popular following. Um, In many ways, Mm -hmm. he's part of a larger set of – as your question suggests, part of a larger set of debates Mm -hmm. around um, internationalism. Um, But he manages to bring them to this larger audience in a way that's quite – quite um fascinating i mean in many ways wilkie is is a johnny come lately to to public debates over internationalism in the sense that he has had this long history as a kind of foot soldier in the in the wilsonian uh kind of internationalist camp right he had been a backer within the democratic party of the league of of ratifying the league of nations when he was quite young um sort of a foot soldier in that that effort at various conventions, uh, national conventions in the 1920s, uh, but never a real public role. Um, and it's only really in the in the early 1940s, as the war is getting going, and as he's trying to search and find a way to to become more part of this debate over the, the place of the United States in the world, that he begins to elaborate a new, or at least a, a newly um, nuanced kind of approach to, to these politics. So one might see him up until the um up until world war two as, as a fairly conventional Wilsonian but by the war he has begun to break away from that and I think his trip really transforms how that how that plays out. And I think the big um the big story of the that my book I hope hopes to convey and that I think readers will enjoy is is seeing Wilkie um Wilkie's eyes being opened as he as he travels around the world, as he goes to um, a number of countries in the Middle East to the Soviet Union and to China. And he sees how, um, how different the world is from, from how most Americans imagine, mm-hmm. it, imagine it and how the people of this large periphery of the world um, are, are not having – how their uh, perspective on the war and on the future of the world after the war is not really reaching the councils of, of the war in London and in Washington. Uh, and he hopes to become their representative and their um, their sort of spokesperson. he sort of hopes to become a sort of medium for their their visions of a remade world, a world that that will move beyond European empire and that will ask and hopefully force the United States to take um, to to live up to its ideals and to mm. to be the most progressive sort of version of a, an international power than it that it can be, and that's really what he begins to see on his his trip.
0: I, I want to focus in a, a bit more on on the trip. You know, in the in the book, your tra- ch- chapters are structured where you're kind of following Wilkie along in some of these destinations in the Middle East, and Tehran, Baghdad, he goes to Russia, as you mentioned, China, all these places, and. There are these great um, sort of moments in each of these chapters and Wilkie's kind of, you do, I think you do a great job of trying to recreate Wil- Wilkie's personality by um, quoting some of the kind of expressions he would use in these this idiomatic language, which sometimes was confusing for his uh, foreign interlocutors, um, but very memorable uh, quips that he was known for. But what, what I kind of noticed while I was reading is, you know, Wilkie at some points he seems conflicted in his role because he's he is this spokesperson um, and he really believes in a lot of these ideas about um, internationalism and moving beyond a you know, kind of an imperial uh, structure in the world. But he also notices that he starts to see, I think, question his own beliefs about um, how the world functions and the place of the United States in the world. and has a kind of and grows himself, and realizes that he had some preconceived notions about um, other parts of the world and mm. ideas of you know civilization and things. And right, right. so he's, he's you know meeting all these people who are in, in, in many cases more extreme than him in some of these beliefs. But he, at the same time, is having a lot of moments where he realizes that he held a belief that was perhaps quite naive or uh, relied, relied on kind of faulty thinking about the way that kind of uh, the the world works. So. Can you just talk a little bit about these kind of conflicting yeah. um, uh, emotions or feelings, thoughts that Wilkie had about his own role as this kind of spokesperson and kind of papering over some aspects of, mm-hmm. of U.S. foreign yeah. policy.
1: Yeah, I think that it's interesting, right? I mean, I think you're you're, you're quite right to speak about this uh, mm-hmm. to talk to talk about this in terms of um, emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ways that I've tried, I, I think, one of the things that I began to understand about Wilkie is that what he's asking people to do is have a feeling about the world, right? Mm This is not a story in many ways about formal diplomacy. I sometimes called it public diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Um, We might think of it as a a term I've used before is um, public feeling. He's very interested in becoming a medium for Americans' feelings about the world. He thinks that Mm -hmm. that's the only way that the United States will be able to to fully open up to the rest of the world. If, if, If regular Americans are brought to the sense that he has traveling around the world, that it should not be... A great challenge for them, or a great um, a great uh, leap for them to to meet the world where it is. Now, at the same time, Mm -hmm. he believes that the United States needs to do to give up some of its illusions about the world. Right? What he calls Mm -hmm. um, narrow its its sense of narrow nationalism and its sense of international imperialism. Right? And he links this to the fight against segregation at home and empire abroad. Um, so he he's challenging on the one hand he's 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 sort of the one of the tensions that's going on here is that he's challenging Americans to have this expansive feeling about the world. And on the other hand, he's challenging them to to give up um, some of their uh, closely held prejudices, right? Some mm-hmm. of the kinds of most powerful forms of um, as you as you note, sort of ideas about civilization and race that lie mm-hmm. at the heart of American history, um, and American political culture, and so this makes for a, a really high bar to clear. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I, I think to to sort of frame this a little bit, I think one of the one of the things that I hope readers will get out of reading this book is, on the one hand, a kind of a, just a great story about a really interesting and charismatic figure. Uh, traveling around the world, trying to figure out how to sort of align and you know put the pieces together of the puzzle of of, of the United States's relationship to the world, something that I think many readers can can um, can identify with as a, as a as a continuing and and recurring problem in American history, one that we are still dealing with obviously mm-hmm. today about how how should Americans feel vis-a-vis the world, right? It's no surprise, right, that. Wilkie's the term that Wilkie made popular, one world, came to be sort of, on the, as I trace in my my conclusion of the book, both sorts of sort of icon of of anti-imperialism and environmentalism, and also a sort of shibboleth for the right, right to the point where it has become a kind of. Um, Stalking horse for the sort of conspiracy theory-minded right these days, who see in the United Nations and other um, any any sort of internationalist or quote-unquote globalist institution a kind of world state in embryo, right? So Wilkie is 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 at this moment in the 1940s, um, at the you know during the first years of America First, right? When he was one of their main targets, right? Trying to work out a way that he can help the United States to move beyond some of these these visions, these these kinds of. Conditions, Um, so the story of him traipsing across the Middle East, right, um, to uh, and then to Soviet Union and China, is is both to to give you this really, hopefully, um, sort of uh, very. Sort of close to the ground portrait of a person experiencing these places, right? It's sort of in that sense a story of travel and of awakening and of of finding new things, right? He travels to. I'm going to give readers just a sense of where he goes. I think it's important for them for them to know. Mm -hmm. He starts in basically his trip starts in Cairo, and then he goes to Ankara, Turkey, and then to Beirut, um, to Jerusalem, to Baghdad, to Tehran, to Moscow, and then to um, China. Um, to Chongqing and to uh, several other locations in China. And in, in all three, pl- all three continents, he, um, he goes to the front. He views the, the fighting at each of the three fronts on the eastern front uh, west of Moscow. Um, at LL Main, he's at el Main when there's a, a great turning point in the war. And then the kind of dormant front um, between the Chinese and the Japanese in mainland China. So he has these incredible experiences. Um, And at the same time, though, he is sort of, as I suggested before, he's sort of waking up to the fact that his internationalism is not quite adequate to deal with the world as it is. And and readers will learn how he comes to a new sort of vision of his own Wilsonian background and sees that Wilson was himself too uh, steeped in ideas about race and civilization to really understand what the world wanted from the United States. Mm -hmm. And that even had the even had the United States embraced the League of Nations, it would never have been enough, and the reasons, partially the reasons why the League of Nations tended to reinforce, even without the United States, the power of European empire on the world stage in the 1920s and 30s. Um, He comes to realize this, and he really is challenged by the people that he meets across the arc of this journey to go further, right? One of the big ways that this happens is that people all across the world are are envisioning the Atlantic Charter, signed in 1941 by by Mm -hmm. Churchill and Roosevelt, as a kind of new beginning for the world, as a kind of um, the conditions under which they might find the same forms of freedom that the United States claimed in its own American revolution, right? They see the Atlantic Charter as a new reorganizing shape in the world. It's seen as less, far less important in the United States and England. Um, but people are continuously bringing this to him, saying, you, "We, you have to live up to this. And he tries to bring that home to the United States. makes a series of mm-hmm. speeches to do so. At the same time, though, as you suggest, and I guess I would Mm -hmm. say that it's a little bit hard to tell how aware Wilkie is of this. Um, You know, one of the most interesting things about Wilkie uh, and confounding things is that he is such a public figure that we have very little sense of his private life and his private reflections Mm -hmm. on his ideas. Much of what we know about him comes from his public pronouncements. Um, so we don't actually know how reflective Wilkie was about his own emerging internationalism. And one of the things I detail in the book is the way that even despite his being someone who hopes to challenge racism, challenge an empire, he has um, still sort of Operating at the heart of his ideas, a kind of what we might just simply call American exceptionalism. He, like many other Americans, sees the United States as as rising to world power in these years and being thus responsible for organizing the world. Um, He wants the United States to do this in an equitable and democratic way. Far more so, that I think, than many of his contemporaries, obviously in the Republican Party, but also in the Democratic Party and those who are at this in these same years organizing the the what will eventually become the United Nations. But there is a kind of way that um, he frames all this in his book as a... A set of expectations that are being brought to the United States and for which the United States is the supreme power to answer for. And that kind of narrative framing of the whole problem goes to I think, underlining the sense that his vast popular audience has that, that this is really down to the United States. And thus, I think, goes to, to some extent in undermining a bit of his ability to recognize the power particularly of um, transforming the transformations in that moment of American empire itself, right? Which in these years is moving from a purely um, hemispheric and territorial kind of empire to a kind of global empire in these years, right? This is the moment of America's um, – uh, you know, real emergence on the world stage and where its ambitions about its world power become global. And, um, and Wilkie recognizes this, but I think is not as powerful at recognizing the way that this, uh, sets of, assu- sets of assumptions about American power will shape his and vast, his vast audience's, um, relations with the world. That said, um, mm-hmm. you know, his, his one world ideal, I think really does stand interestingly and powerfully in between a number of the um the kinds of tendencies we tend to imagine shaping america's role in the world in the years of the closing years of world war ii and in the founding of the united nations um right he he really does one world stands apart from certainly a kind of older conservative nationalism often mistitled isolationism and a sort of budding and emerging liberal internationalism, which will underpin the Cold War, the one-worldism, as we might call it, is a different kind of vision of a more democratic and more um, more multilateral role for the United States vis-a-vis um, the rest of the rest of, of of the world. And I think it's important to to try to go back to that moment and try to pull out from the story of Wilkie's journey and the the um, Publication of his book, One World's massive bestseller, to see how how that tendency um, evolved, what its possibilities were, and how it was ultimately foreclosed.
0: A critical piece of of all of this um, that you show very clearly in the book is is the kind of celebrity status that that Wilkie obtains right before in preparing for this interview. I was looking up some clips of, of Wilkie, some mm-hmm. archival footage, and he, he seems someone who is really. Adept at performing for the cameras um, and presenting this kind of public image, and as you say, it, in, in this case, it's it's hard for historians perhaps to get it as more his, his personal life because he was such a a public figure. I was just struck, especially by the you know the importance of of, of radio uh, in, in this era for for his success, and obviously, there's a lot of um, a lot of historians, uh, scholars in media studies. I've looked at this and there's an emerging body of literature that looks at telecommunications and the emergence of that field. But can you just speak a little bit about the celebrity aspect of Wilkie? And I'm interested in how he was able to bring together uh, this Midwestern folksiness with this very cosmopolitan uh, uh, sense uh, side of himself. How did he blend those two things and appeal to Mm -hmm. such a wide Demographic of people, indeed. Who who was, uh, what was Wilkie's main demographic? Would you say?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, you know, this is one of the great mysteries and sort of miracles of Wilkie as a persona, right? Is this way that he was able to, um, able to, kind of appeal uh, to people's sense of themselves as regular people, as mm-hmm. people who lived everyday lives. And at the same time, to appeal to them as to them as people who, who imagined greater futures and greater horizons for their lives, I think um, that he had this kind of amazing capacity for, for just regular talk and then sort of exalted, uh, a sort of somewhat. Um, BS sometimes that just would (laughs) kind of, that was sort of, you know, I think for, for, for some people who were skeptical about Wilkie and there were many, they thought of him as sort of a lightweight, right? Because he could, (laughs) he could just kind of, um, lapse into these kind of bromides and, and sort of blustering big talk. But I think that helped him to seem more, um, amenable to just regular everyday people. Um, part of this was just that he was really great as a sort of retail politician i mean for instance the um the famous particularly famous at that time somewhat forgotten now um journalist and writer damon runyon well known for his uh, chronicling of everyday american language said uh that wilkie was one of the greatest mixers i ever saw in my life <laughs> a barroom gladhander a, a corner cigar store backslapper, and the columnist drew pearson who was also equally influential back then said that for sheer force of personality and character, Wilkie made the greatest impact of any man I've ever talked to. He rings true, right? So Wilkie was particularly liked by um, reporters, by people who spent their lives um, trying to get good quotes and good copy off of politicians and everyday people because he, Wilkie, really operated, as I said, as a sort of medium between these two worlds. So I I think that was part of it, right? Just that he he really just had this sense of how to – how to um, to lean into a conversation with any with anybody he met. He could be um, really um, receptive to 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 thinking and listening to what people had to say, um, and then to try to to sort of take that in general terms and spin it back out as a big vision of of the world. Mm-hmm. He was also basically um, the kind of person who had a really this is hard to track, and again, having to do with the sense that we have little sense of his internal contradictions, his internal mm-hmm. struggles or thoughts about who he was. Um uh, but he was somebody who was both seemed to both be very flexible in his personality. Someone called him having uh, described him as having a very plastic soul, but at the mm-hmm. same time had great principles, right? And he would often um, he would often, uh, I think those principles changed a little bit. But I do think that he um, was able to, uh, convince people that he had, um, great feeling and principle behind the things that he stood for. And he certainly wanted people to believe that and see that. Um, and, you know, that sometimes led him into all sorts of, um, unfortunate, uh, circumstances. And, um, he was sometimes seen as quite unreliable by people who um, were involved in politics and, um, and the media, uh, you know, he was—he was, he was a great hero to reporters. I think he was less of a hero to to their editors, who found him to be um, quite thin skinned and worried about his reputation. And um, he was quick to bristle in in certain situations mm-hmm. and quick to question people's um, belief in his principles. Um, but he was, you know, he really had this kind of, um, sense of how to connect regular everyday speech and everyday life to these larger, um, this sort of larger horizon for, for international and global connection. He really hoped to make himself the medium for that. And that's kind of what I try to, to get at in this moment, which I call the age of broadcasting, right? The sort of moment in our Mm -hmm. cultural history in which uh, the greatest audience is assembled, um, for uh, for ideas are, are sort of all assembled under one so one one heading right the one, excuse me under one um, under one broadcasting kind of ethos right which we see both mm-hmm. in radio and we see in. Um, in newspaper, um, subscri- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Syndication services, excuse me. Mm. And um, you know, sort of the very end of the age of the telegraph, right? Which is, you know, people are still using telegraphs, the telegraph to communicate instantaneously or close to instantaneously around the world. And, um, you know, it's just before the age of television where we'll start to see the, the, uh, the making of niche markets uh, becoming more and more pop- important. So Wilkie's one of these people that I think is thrown up by the age of broadcasting as a kind of representative. Representative figure that could join people together in this sort of world of mass culture um, that's so powerful. You know, he's he's sort of a a a creature of this era. I think of the 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 opinion poll, uh, the syndication service, the 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 national radio broadcast, and his his personality is tailor made for this for this world. Um, Now that said, and you asked about his actual his actual constituency. You know, he doesn't appeal to everyone. In some ways, he is seen, I think, um, as a bit of a a divisive figure by some. And that's particularly true by the middle of the war. He is um, quite powerfully appealing to um, a whole big swath of the middle class, um, particularly the white middle class. Um, and he's uh, particularly Midwesterners um, and people uh, on the East Coast and West Coast who see themselves as uh, sort of operating in the sort of broad middle of American politics, who may swing between Democrat, the Democratic and Republican Party, who's, um, who, sense, who think of themselves as regular Americans, um, and, but who had a, a kind of hopeful and opening prospect about the, about the world at large in these years. He's also very popular amongst African Americans um, because of his uh, forthright stances for civil rights during the 1939 and 40 campaign. He's able to come out um, for a, and believes in an anti-lynching bill, for instance, in a way that Roosevelt is just not able to do and probably didn't believe in doing um, during those years, perhaps. Um, And so he's able to do that. He gets huge, um, he's one of the last Republican candidates, uh, presidential candidates to get the support of, of an institution like, say, the Pittsburgh Courier, the African American newspaper, mm-hmm. um, he's far less supported amongst the white working class. Right? Um, mm-hmm. He has a you know he who are you know obviously quite committed in these years to have been won over to the New Deal in these years, uh, because he's seen essentially as a sort of critic of the New Deal and a um, and a, and a kind of a representative of business interests. Although I think that in some sense. Um, narrows what his possible uh, appeal could have been, and he moved quite a bit to the left between 1939 and his de- his untimely death in 1944. So he's he's trying to broaden his appeal in those years, but he's having trouble because of the um, the way that nationalism comes to become more and more, particularly after 1944, becomes to become more and more the kind of um, uh, sort of undertow in American politics in those years, um, despite the kind of growing internationalism of of the years mm. that will produce the the, the uh, United Nations.
0: Yeah, you, you know your your response uh, is making me think about something that historians who you know write about really charismatic figures like like Wilkie like to talk about, which is kind of feeling like getting getting the sense that they know their historical actors after you know having completed the book, and so this <laughs> kind of you know brings us to my the next part. Uh, questions that I had, which is really about the kind of method- methodology and the archival work that went into this project. Um, you know, you were writing a, a biographical work um, that you know obviously explores a lot of these really interesting things and these bigger topics. But did you have this kind of experience? You know, by the by the end of the book, um, like you really like were able to get inside. Or you said you weren't really able to get inside Wilkie's head because I guess the sources didn't permit it. But I was wondering if you could say more about the source base that you used. And indeed, did you envision this as a kind of biographical type work initially, or did you have some other kind of a plan in mind?
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, it it, no, yeah, it was really hard to get inside Wilkie's head. And this is something that I think um, all his, his sort of full biographers, those who've written um, full biographies of Wilkie's whole life really have had trouble to Getting at um, And my book, you know, deals with his whole life, but it it really concentrates on these years um, between nineteen forty two or so and nineteen forty four, really, and, and zeroes in on this these these um, month and a half that he spent you know, hopscotching across the uh, across the globe to six countries in the Middle East, the Soviet Union, and China. So much of the work that I did um, it was to try to understand how. What it was that Wilkie found, what it was that he confronted, and what it was that he tried, that he had to try to understand, when he touched down in Cairo, in Ankara, in Jerusalem, in Beirut, in Baghdad, in Tehran, in Moscow, and in Chongqing. I mean, these are the these are the great these to me were the the sort of the uh, great sort of missing. A kind of missing episode in our histories of world war ii and i think readers who are interested in stories of world war ii world war ii will find this particularly interesting because this is a this is a part of the the kind of history of world war ii that we almost never get uh which is uh unless it's, it's told as part of a sort of particular account of of battles right we have many accounts of the battles of el alamein we have very little um Or less understanding of what's going on in Cairo amongst the sort of – all the the kind of narrow and and, um, very heated infighting that's going on between the British, um, the Egyptians. And the, the Americans who are arriving in greater and greater numbers, um, dealing with the legacy of the Ottoman Empire, the legacy of colonialism, right? And each one of these places has that uh, that story. And so his swing across the Middle East forces him to come into conflict and, and into um, to confront the legacy of empire in the Middle East, right? The Mandate Era uh proclamations of, of, of the League of Nations era, uh, him to, to see how it is that there are so many people there who see world war two as the a chance for their own liberation, their own freedom. So I needed to find that those voices in the historical archives. Um, so that was, that was actually not a simple thing to do. Not surprisingly, right. Um, needed to be able to, to find, um, sources in other language in, in several other languages, in Arabic and, um, in French, in in um, and then uh, later in Russia, Russian and Chinese, and have those translated. Um, and and by I, by no means could could do that completely, right? Uh, most of this research is done in the the specific literatures of these places, which I think are interesting to string together from the perspective of a, of an American coursing through them, because most of the literatures about, say, Baghdad in 1942 have to do with the particular. Um, Trajectory of the formation of, of the Iraqi nation, right? Let's say, mm-hmm. um, and the same thing is true in Tehran, and the same thing is true in in Jerusalem or Beirut, right? And the various contestations with with, with the ebbing for forces of European empire and the rising power of a new nationalist generation, and and learning all of those histories and learning how to see them through the eyes of an American who is. Who is questioning his own country's role in this this world that f- they know very little about, um, and how that how Americans are seeing themselves in relation to the British, who are uh, and the French who are so powerful in these places, right uh, Wilkie encounters, has uh, several encounters with Churchill in various ways, which are quite amusing. Uh, and likewise with Charles de Gaulle and with Stalin. Um, And these, these encounters are sort of the highlights of this, but there's this whole sort of underground current uh, of, of, of of sort of straight dope and inside information that's reaching Wilkie as well, in part, because of who he is, of the kind of, he seems and obviously comes across to people all across the world as somebody who is willing to hear from regular people and just the way that he was in in the United States. So I had to try to uncover all that and to try to bring that to the surface and to make it as part of a a sort of engaging story and a story that would, I think. Hope help um, readers to see World War II anew, to see it in this kind of fresh light. So that's part of what I was trying to do by combining the sort of political story of World War II and the cultural story of of Wilkie's role as a kind of quasi-celebrity in the age of broadcasting to kind of bring this underground story um, to light and to show how it goes into the making of this idea of one world that does a, a lot to challenge... Uh, some of the status quo thinking about America's place in the world in the years, 1943,
0: 44 and 45. Could you like, what would you say was the, the, the kind of, what, what was the main challenge that, I mean, like that you encountered in the arc Was it, was it trying to figure out where these records were? Like, what was the actual, you just give us like the kind of yeah. nitty gritty of the research <laughs> process. Like what, I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, multi-archival research. Was it, was that the main challenge or?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, I would, I think it would be, I think it would be unfair or false of me to claim that I did, um, extensive digging in the archives of, um, the places that Wilkie went to. That just wasn't possible. And I don't have the language or I didn't have the resources to do that all the time. I think what I did though, was I read deeply, uh, as deeply as I could, um, on, on, in the secondary literature about these mm-hmm. places and these times. So I did sort of mini research projects on each of these places, right? So six countries in the Middle East, the Soviet Union, and China, which is why this book t- took a decade to write in the end uh, mm-hmm. for, for a story about um, two or three years in the United States' history. Um, and and used that to sort of target, um, to make targeted kinds of um, uh, forays into the archives of, in various places in the United States, in, U- in the UK, right? The... The, uh, at, at Kew Gardens, and um, and then just I had to find sort of little ways into into other places. I, I found some uh, some good Arabic newspaper resources, and I found there's you know the Russian archives of the of the Soviet era. A, a lot of it is surprisingly online, and I don't think anybody had yet looked at um, mm-hmm. that the 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 records. Um, surrounding the wilkie visit right there's the entire transcript of uh, of his discussions with stalin um and other things that i think nobody's really quite ever considered worthy of looking at but which really quite fascinating in the end um and so i was i was able to to do that um i think uh in a way that helped to contribute to the story but doesn't take away from and doesn't didn't take away from that narrative drive so you know Mm -hmm. that's i I think what i was trying to do
0: I, I mean, I think it, what I was really kind of impressed by was you have these moments in the book, in each chapter where you're, you're trying to give the reader a sense of, you know, the, the vast amounts of history that, that they should be able to kind of grasp and understand the context and, but you do it really elegantly and it doesn't feel heavy handed and it just kind of fits in really well. And then we kind of return back, to, back to Wilkie, you know, meeting with someone, but I found that just like really impressive, the grasp you have of. So many different historiographies. Well, that is um, thank you yeah. so
1: much for saying that, because that is what I was trying to do. What I wanted people to be able to experience when they read this book was to have a kind of through line, a thread. Mm-hmm. It was Wilkie's life, his journey. The experience of uh, to sort of reading along with Wilkie and and the the, the, yeah. the revelations, but but then to have these kinds of moments of deep dive and to moments of realizing how big the world was around Wilkie and how much he was not able to see, but that he could kind of glean or glimpse, and that went into the next stage of his journey and then into his efforts to expose Americans through his speeches and through. Uh, The book One World and his efforts to to to, to try to sort of democratize the UN, right? To 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 show how those sort of deep dives, those that larger context that we can see now from the historiographical literature, right? From the labor of many historians, many of my fellow historians, and I am in debt to so many of them, um, are really kind of give a reader a way of seeing both a narrative story and a kind of what we historians think is so important, which is to understand the, the deep context of any moment. And I wanted regular readers to be able to kind of um, balance those two experiences. So often in history writing and in writing for the public, we're asked to um, to really shear away as much context as we can. And um, yeah. Any of my editors will tell you how much of how much shearing they had to do to some of the early drafts, but I fought to try to keep that sense of the richness of the context, but also to see it as contributory to the larger current of the book, the larger kind of arc of the narrative. And I and I'm I'm glad to hear you say that it succeeds, and I hope readers will will agree with that.
0: Yeah, um, we're coming up uh, to our kind of final few minutes together, but I, I would really like to know about um, what what you're onto, what your new project is. If you, if you've have one in uh, development, I know this is, uh, just came out. So maybe, uh, you know, I'm asking too much here, but you know, do you, do you see, do you, are you going to explore more of this, this theme of kind of internationalism and Americans thinking about their, their place in the larger world? or Are you going to return back to some of your your earlier work and looking at the kind of urban history?
1: Mm -hmm. So I, you know, it is early and I have a number of different, um, Projects in mind right now. I tend to be a bit of a polymath. I think mm-hmm. I'm interested in I'm interested in the way that ideas get involved in the world. I'm interested in the way that they, um, the way they move essentially, mm-hmm. um, the way they get involved with uh, the way they come up to the surface of public life in politics, in, in, um, culture moments of cultural transformation. So I'm interested in the sort of nexus between ideas and, and culture and politics. So, um, I have tended to be interested though in those in cities. And this book was a, an interesting kind of, uh, detour from that to some extent, although it is, I think just I, to my mind, what this book is, is, is a contribution to American cultural history. um, mm-hmm. And you know culture and the history of American political culture. I um I've been thinking of a number of things going forward, and they're they're kind of equally in several different directions. Um, I've taught and thought a lot about. I've used to teach quite a bit about music. I'm interested in some stuff about music in um, the United King in England in the late seventies and early eighties and race. I'm interested in. Um, uh, particularly around the way that reggae music and uh, gets gets incorporated into the, the era of uh, UK punk, um, which takes me back to some of my own interests in subculture mm-hmm. growing up. I'm interested in the I'm interested in doing some work, as that uh, topic suggests, in the '70s through the '90s. Um, interested in the ways that the um, the long sort of long tail of the of the counterculture in the United States and the ways that it its um, visions of, of of, uh, sort of liberation from, uh, the status quo, uh, feed into libertarianism to a certain extent. And then I I'm, 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 I'm at the larger project that I think I want to do these days is one that goes back quite a bit and I call it the city and the self. And it's about metropolitan transformation and transformations and ideas of, of, of selfhood. And what they're all, what all these projects are about is in some sense about how do we, um, Particularly Americans, how do Americans confront the fact of their interdependence with with others? Um, I told that uh, that story in some sense um, in my first book around the uh, in, in the conflicts that that grow up over neighborhood life and modern planning. I told it in this book in in the idealist around the the, the ways that Americans were faced to confront their forced to confront their interdependence with people at large across the globe mm. during World War II. And hopefully it's a lesson for our own struggles with that now during a time of globalization and pandemics. Um, and, and I'm interested in sort of going back in some ways to the city and tracing that over a very long period and looking from the late 19th century up until the end of the 20th century and looking at the way that cities are um, bring forward for um, particularly Americans um, the problem of interdependence for a political culture that is basically structured around ideas of independence and dependence um, and how interdependence becomes a, um, a kind of scrambling uh, dilemma and problem for Americans, and particularly around questions of, of, of race, gender, and inequality in city life. Across the 20th century, so it's a massive project, and it will need to touch down in a series of case studies. And I'm not quite sure how that all no. works together. But I'm, I'm interested in essentially questions of selfhood and and um, and in, individualism and the way that they um, are scrambled by by urban life. Um, yeah. So that's a very large uh, research project in some sense. That I'm not sure quite sure where it'll end up.
0: Well, it's, I mean, it sounds really fascinating, nonetheless, and I'll, I'll look forward to <laughs> to reading about it once it uh, comes out in article uh, form or, or book book form. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let me just say thanks thanks again for for chatting uh, with me today. Uh, I feel like I've learned a lot uh, about the about the book and the kind of larger context. And um, yeah, I'm looking f- forward to your future work.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate the chance to talk about my book, and um, I appreciate your interest.